No. I think I had, I think given the next clip, I have some a note that I wrote in my. I don't know where it applies. I feel like it applies to all of this. Maybe I'll just say it now because I was thinking of this. And it also reminds me, I wrote it after the Shawnee Land and Cattle Company. And obviously, it's this is not a. Nah, I'm not. I'm not gonna say. Jeez, all that lead up. <laughs> all right, fine. I'll fine. I will. So. Welcome to the Intervention Podcast. It's Nick here with Levi, Steve, and Evan from Left of the Projector Podcast. How are you guys doing tonight? Uh, living the dream. Good. Yeah, Steve's excited as always. You know, same old. Yeah. <laughs> Steve and Evan bringing the energy tonight. <laughs> yeah, I'll try. I'll try. <laughs> oh, man. No, it's all good. It's all good. But uh, we're back again tonight for another entry into the New Deal series. Evan's presence might be a little bit of a spoiler because we're going to be looking at film, but the roles are reversed a little bit. So we're bringing you on Evan to actually look at some works of cinematography. So maybe it'll take a little bit of the load off you for hosting. Yeah, that's a little relief. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, burden, the burden is lifted. Good, good. But yeah, with that, we're kind of maybe endear ourselves a little bit to the Gramscian crowd tonight because we're taking a turn towards the arena of culture in the New Deal, the Great Depression eras tonight. And with that, I'll just turn it right over to Levi to set the stage. To provide context to this episode, I relied most on the work of Michael Denning's 1998 monograph, The Cultural Front, The Laboring of American Culture in the 20th Century. A little context is needed before summarizing Denning's argument. The quote-unquote popular front was an explicit directive by the Communist International, the Comintern, in 1934 to embrace anti-fascism over anti-capitalism agitation in order to create a united front against the rise and spread of Nazi Germany, Falangist or Francoist Spain, and Fascist Italy. In the United States, the Popular Front opened members of the Communist Party of the United States, CPUSA, to make alliances with fellow travelers, Trotskyists, New Dealers, and even conservatives, so long as they rested on a bedrock of anti-fascism. Denning broadens the popular front into what he calls the, quote, cultural front by decentering the common turn in CPUSA and instead focusing on the work of cultural production from 1934 through World War II. Taking a cue from Italian communist philosopher activist Antonio Gramsci, Denning argued, quote, it is a mistake to see the popular front as a marriage of communists and liberals. The heart of the popular front is a social movement lay among those who were non-communist socialists and independent leftists, working with communists and liberals, but marking out a culture that was neither a party with a capital P nor a liberal New Deal culture, end quote. With this broader framing, Denning pulled together a much wider net of workers in the entertainment field, including writers, artists, composers, actors, and critics, so long as they came from working class backgrounds and articulated an understanding of American culture which challenged the rise of fascism. Even if these individuals never considered themselves a part of the literal popular front, and even if they considered themselves in opposition to the literal popular front. I mean, this lays kind of the groundwork for McCarthyism throughout Hollywood at some level where even if they don't identify, which many people who were persecuted under those witch trials weren't, could still be 
credibly associated with the communists, right? Yeah, I guess that could be considered one of the sort of ironies of Denning's structure here is that it's providing a sort of validity to McCarthy's attack, although clearly Denning is not actually interested in claiming that any of these people really were communists, rather to say that the communists were speaking to an actual popular representation. Right. I mean, who could honestly believe that something that communists believe could have popular traction, right? Incredible. His subjects are the immigrant and black working class of the American South, Eastern and Southern Europe, those coming from the Pacific Rim, the Caribbean, South America, and those internally displaced due to the failures of capitalism made acute by the crash of 1929. These workers joined Congress of International Organizations, CIO, unions en masse under the pro-labor politics of the New Deal and consumed a mass-produced culture in numbers unforeseen in American history, which we discussed in part in the second part of this New Deal series. In turn, these same working-class consumers also produced these novels, paintings, sculptures, works of theater, music, dance, and film. Therefore, Denning argued, those who experience the realities of class, race, ethnic, sexual, and gender divisions firsthand produced art imbued with the hopes of a new working class culture united by anti-fascism. Denning does not argue the cultural front furthered a political movement, but rather it represented a time when contingencies aligned to alter the acceptable limits of representations of class, race, ethnicity, sex, and gender in art. This movement also happened to be when such representations became national in character, rather than limited by the consumption of a particular region, race, religion, or ethnicity. Although Denning argued this movement to create a new culture counter to the hegemony, uh, meaning dominant ideology, of liberal capitalism marked a, quote, failure of the laboring of American culture, end quote, he argued this failure created an important, quote, imprint on American culture. The exact contours of this imprint are limited, but might be understood as the shadow of an influence of left political messaging still present in American film and media. In this episode, we'll be comparing the three wildly popular forms of John Steinbeck's novel, The Grapes of Wrath, and how it represents the successes and failures of this imprinting at its peak. Steinbeck published The Grapes of Wrath in April 1939. 20th Century Fox released the film adaptation produced by Daryl F. Zanuck, written by Nunnally Johnson, and directed by John Ford in January 1940. And Victor Records released Woody Guthrie's Dust Bowl Ballads, which contained his seven-minute epic adaptation of the novel Tom Jode in July 1940. Before diving into Steinbeck's work, we'll also briefly consider the popular American fascist 1933 pre-New Deal propaganda film, Gabriel Over the White House, as a contrasting piece of work. Gabriel was a curious MGM production, created by arch-capitalist, media mogul, and all-around ghoul, William Randolph Hearst. While Steinbeck's work chronicled the fictional Jode family of Oklahoma, and their struggle to escape the Dust Bowl, which represented Steinbeck's vision of the working-class spirit of America, Hearst's film called for the incoming Roosevelt administration to embrace a violent authoritarianism 
in order to wrest America from the influences of corruption and return America to its greatness. Each representation embodied a fascinating history that should help us understand the possibility and limits of the politics of cultural production and give an insight into the balance of popular discourse in this moment in history. So let's start with Gabriel over the White House, which Hearst produced in 1933, as the real events fictionalized in The Grapes of Wrath continued to unfold, in seven years prior to Steinbeck's novelization of the tragedy. Can I mention one thing? I don't know if you know much about this, but do you, you familiar with the Hayes Code? Those were the like censorship codes of the United States film industry. Exactly. But what I think is interesting is that it began in 1934, like right after this. I don't necessarily think that this would have been censored after the fact, but it's an interesting period where this is coming in. And you see if Grapes of Wrath had been like before the Hayes Codes, I could see them having made a much different movie. Hmm. And just an interesting thing, because it was very much not about communist or leftist ideas, but they definitely came under pressure in that period. That's an interesting point. I had no idea that that was the exact year that that came in. Was that part of the New Deal? Was that a federal initiative or was that sort of self-regulated? No, it was like, yeah, it was a self-censorship type of deal. But it was sort of like there was pressure on the Motion Picture Association, I believe, to make certain rules around it. The timing is pretty auspicious because Gabriel over the White House did cause a huge media stir. What's also interesting is that there was also right wing content that was sort of self-censored at the time. So it wasn't completely left. Another podcast talked about Hayes Code, anything related to LGBT type of content, you know, sexual content. But they also wouldn't make things that explicitly were pro Nazi at the time explicitly, I guess, in quotation marks, because they still did. It just wasn't as obvious. You just need to get back to the radical center, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Got to get that third way going. That's right. I think that's as good an introduction as any to the great piece of propaganda. So Gabriel over the White House began when Thomas F. Tweed, a close political advisor to British Prime Minister Lloyd George, published the novel Reinhard a melodrama of the 1930s and early 1933. William Randolph Hearst, commander of the world's largest media empire and close personal friend of Prime Minister George, loved the story. He sent it to Carrie Wilson to be written into a script, which he then rushed to his own Cosmopolitan Productions movie picture company for filming. There is no other way to understand Gabriel over the White House other than as a piece of American fascist propaganda and poorly made propaganda at that. You know, it must be nice when you have your own movie company, when you like something and you can just say, hey, make this into something that I can use to further my own agenda. (laughs) And I already have the ear of some major world politicians as well. It's a great position to be in, isn't it? Must be nice. (laughs) I know that a lot of the time he used that movie production company to get various women that he was attracted to leading roles. It was never designed to be actually very profitable. I'm sure nothing was held over those women's head either. I mean, that's just like 1930s Hollywood though, right? Well, well probably up till now Hollywood. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, not much has changed. You mean actually existing Hollywood? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Many newspapers and magazines in the Depression years of the Hoover administration opined about their desire for an American Mussolini or Yankee Hitler. 
Barron's Magazine on February 13th, 1933, published the following in an editorial statement, quote, A genial and lighthearted dictator might be a relief from the pompous futility of such a Congress as we have recently had. So we return repeatedly to the thought that a mild species of dictatorship will help us over the roughest spots in the road ahead. Sometimes openly, and at other times secretly, we have been longing to see the Superman emerge. Even with the sentiment being somewhat mainstream, at Gabriel's March 1st, 1933 preview, just three days before Roosevelt's inauguration, Lewis B. Mayer stormed out of the theater, sent the film back to MGM, and demanded extensive reshoots. As a Republican, Mayer worried, and MGM agreed, the film presented President Herbert Hoover as weak while encouraging Roosevelt to rule as a despot. After a few weeks of reshoots and editing, which in all took more time than the original shooting and editing scheduled, MGM distributed the film to theaters across America in April. Though controversial, and maybe because of this controversy, the film became a modest, critical, and commercial hit. It ended up turning a profit of over $200,000, or $4.7 million, in 2023 dollars. The profit is all the more remarkable, given that almost none of Hearst's films up to this point even met their production cost. The nation denounced Gabriel as attempting to, quote, convert innocent American movie audiences to a policy of fascist dictatorship in this country, end quote, but commended the film for acknowledging popular interest in politics. Commonweal Magazine wrote, quote, It sets a precedent. It opens up, for good or for evil, a new channel of influencing the mass emotions and judgment of the people. We know now that most dangerous weapon of propaganda can be forged, end quote. This film existed in a space before the cultural front of Denning. It might provide a good comparison to the Grapes of Wrath narrative, which earned similar popularity without the pro-fascist agenda. The political plot of the movie is easy to summarize. Judd Hammond becomes president during a massive economic crisis. He's a corrupt, uncaring, and incompetent party politician. He experiences a near-fatal car crash. While comatose and known to be at death's door, he's revived by Archangel Gabriel with a newfound conscience and vigor. He fires his corrupt cabinet, adjoins Congress by declaring martial law, uses a militia made of disgruntled veterans to enforce his will on evil gangsters. Finally, he dies, signing an act which dissolves the world's militaries, creating a massive peace dividend, stemming the economic collapse of the nation and world. There's also a romantic B-plot that doesn't deserve summary, and a heavy-handed implication that pre-transformative Hammond slept with his personal secretary, which caused major media controversy at the time. But in hindsight, is very tame. So we'll just consider three different clips here, because this movie really is just so painful to watch. It's absolutely brutal. I didn't watch it, so. Neither did I. I took your advice. Thankfully. Did you bother watching the clips before this, or is this the uh, first exposure? I did watch the clips, which, yeah, if that was any indication, then everybody's in for a treat. So in this clip, Hammond is playing on his hands and knees with his young nephew character, while leader of the Bonus Army stand-in, quote, the Million Man March, speaks on the radio. So throughout this scene, Hammond appears to not pay attention whatsoever to what's going on on the radio, and he's meant to be shown as very weak and ineffectual. 
This is John Bronson speaking, not for himself, but for over a million men who are out of work, who cannot earn money to buy food because those responsible for providing work have failed in their obligations. Three, go. We ask no more than that which every citizen of the United States should be insured, the right to live, the right to put food in the mouths of our wives and children. Our underlying purpose is not revolutionary. We are not influenced by militant leaders. None of us are Reds. We merely want work. And we believe this great United States of America, under proper leadership, can provide work for everybody. I have appealed to the President for an interview. And the President says he will not deal with us because we are dangerous anarchists. We are not. We are citizens of America with full confidence in the American democracy. If it is properly administered, how do I know what you people of America are hopelessly involved in the overcoat? The President of the United States always wears when he goes to the United States Naval Academy. I ask your President now if he's ever read the Constitution of the United States as it was laid out by those great men that day in Philadelphia long ago. A document which guarantees the American people the rights of life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness. All we ask is to be given those rights. This country is sound. The right man in the White House can bring us out of despair into prosperity again. We ask him at least to try. So what the hell is going on in this scene? What is the message? We are not communists. And work makes one free. The libertarian argument? Yeah, John Bronson keeps calling for the right to work. He's not asking for any kind of handout, any kind of support, any kind of obligation from the state or the government. He just wants these damn capitalists to let him get back to work. It's their fault because they just aren't doing what capitalists are supposed to do. He also wants a strong daddy to come and just make it happen for him. We just need this one special boy to come into the White House and make everything okay for us. If you're at the head of a million-man army, like he says, make it fucking happen yourself. Yeah, he's just constantly positioning himself as asking for some sort of permission to demand these milk toast requirements. Like, if he truly is, as you said, the head of this army that's marching towards the capital, why doesn't he at least, uh, you know, ask for changes so that this doesn't get worse or that it could be better in the future, like the actual bonus army? To Evan's point, it is the same thing that libertarians always do, right? It's like, please just instantiate this glorious system that our founders came up with. Just instantiate it better. Just please give us a redo. We can try again. We just need the right person to come in and make it happen. And if he has to get a little authoritarian and brutal, then whatever. But please. We need pure capitalism. Exactly. No, no, no government intervention. And in a previous scene, Hammond refuses to meet with him specifically because he calls him an anarchist. And Bronson is just so repetitive on this point that I am not an anarchist. I am not a communist. Not a single one of us is a red. Nobody among this million man march has any inclinations towards anything but bowing to the flag. It's just such a repainting of reality. Like why would audiences even conceive of this as remotely true or possible? Also, why do you want to be this guy? It's like, this motherfucker's weak. The ideology of the movie is, I guess, it's not the people that really make the decisions. It's the president. Right. It's the strong man in charge, the great man. So I think that's as good as any to move on to this second clip. It's after he's been awakened by Gabriel and he's showing himself to be that strong man. He addresses the crowd and I'd like you to pay attention to how the crowd even looks in this clip. It is not fitting for citizens of America to come on weary feet to seek their president. It is rather for their president to seek them out, 
and to bring to them freely the last full measure of protection and help. And so I come to you. I feel certain the last thing you men want is charity, money for idleness, and the demoralization which follows in its wake. Seventeen years ago, the government put guns and bayonets in our hands and told us to bring back peace. We did. Now put shovels and picks in our hands, and we really bring back prosperity. I just want to pause it here. Does anybody care to describe how this crowd looks? Do they look like they've been marching across the United States, hungry, without food? They're all dressed pretty nicely. Yeah. Most of them are wearing ties. Lily white. Every, yeah, every single one of them is white. Everyone's got a buttoned up collar. Everyone's got a banded hat that's fitted to their head. Lily white and full of pricks. And I mean that in both senses. We want work! We want work! chance of getting work. But I say there is work, necessary work, waiting to be done. I'm going to make you a proposition. You've been called the army of the unemployed. Your soldiers trained not in the arts of war, but in the greater arts of peace. Trained not to destroy, but to build up if someone will give you a job. I propose, therefore, to create an army to be known as the army of constructions. You will be enlisted subject to military discipline. You will receive army rates of pay. You'll be fed, clothed, and housed as we did our wartime armies. You'll be put to work, each one of you, in your own field, from baking loaves of bread to building great dams without one dollar of profit accruing to anyone. Then, as the wheels of industry begin to turn, stimulated by these efforts, you will gradually be retired from this construction army back into private industry as rapidly as industry can absorb you. That sounds very well, Mr. President, but what's Congress going to say to all this? I have called a special session of Congress for tomorrow. I shall ask them for funds to carry out my plans for the rehabilitation of America. If they give me these funds tomorrow, I shall immediately open the first construction army recruiting station here in Baltimore. And you shall be my first soldiers. Hey, I've got an idea. I'm going to re- this I've got this plan. It's happened before. I, I'm going to make it more successful, though. I'm going to reintroduce slavery. And then you guys can be <laughs> sharecroppers after that. But it'll go back to capitalism as soon as like slavery is over, as yeah. soon as everything's back to normal. Yeah. I want to note his hairstyle is very reminiscent of a Hitler in a sense. Like he has this weird haircut on the side. I feel like it's very bashy. It's, it's like slightly more hair than what Proud Boys have. <laughs> this idea of the creation of this army for this purpose is, you know, kind of inherently reactionary in a lot of ways, right? But I do think there's something interesting to discuss here, because like if you have already like a standing army, you know, like a national army or national armed forces or anything, like I guess I am not categorically against this idea of putting these people to work for (laughs) pursuits other than just killing people in other countries. Right. Like if you've already got this existing structure, we have examples of this in other socialist states specifically. Right. Where the army is not just meant for killing people. It's meant to go set up different centers in rural areas doing agricultural work doing infrastructural work there's the kernel of like an idea in this that has worked in non-reactionary context 
this idea that he's kind of creating like again this army of angry white dudes in this time where we're in this pivotal moment and they're going to go out and kind of ruthlessly get done what needs to get done and then once that's done then the free hand of the market's going to take back over and everybody's going to live happily ever after right you lose any kind of positive impetus that may be there yeah if it was coming from a better place or a better person i think that would be accurate right lenin maybe yeah it's all about for whom so these same concepts can be put in the mouths of national socialists and socialists and capitalists and mean something completely different in terms of where they see this project going and in the mouths of a outright american fascist we don't agree with where these things are going to go. But that's what it begs the question, how different is this construction of the way he's imagining the state different than what we imagined Roosevelt understanding the major work projects of the New Deal? Well, I mean, I wrote down watching this clip, like it's like a temporary measure for this level of kind of state intervention, right? And in a lot of ways, that's all that the New Deal was from Roosevelt's perspective, right? It was a stopgap measure to kind of correct the course but not change the fundamentals, as we've said time and time again. Well, he says specifically in this clip that things will just work themselves out. All the private industry right. will just absorb all of this as needed. It's like that's you have a lot of faith in a system that brought this failure to work again next time. Next time. Yeah, that's fundamentally he cannot provide a criticism of the system which brought them there, because in his argument, the system itself is going to save it. So capitalism caused this crash. What's going to save it? More capitalism. So who are the villains in this story? Who caused any of these problems? I don't think it's ever even remotely addressed other than these roving bands of gangsters that aren't following the law because they don't agree that liquor should be off the streets. Yeah, they're blaming the mob, basically. I think it's also really telling, and I think we have echoes of this throughout American history, he says it's not fitting for citizens of America to come on weary feet to seek their president. It is rather for their president to seek them out. It's almost trying to quell the impetus to march on Washington and demand something, right? They're trying to frame this like, oh, no, we're here to help. But when have they ever really come to help outside of like what maybe FDR did, at least on the, that kind of scale? The, the, the point of this whole thing is that people still needed to get on their weary feet and go and demand shit. It just doesn't happen like that, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so this is where the movie is trying to contend with being incredibly present and speaking to a real political problem. But its ideology can't fully imbibe what's happening in reality, so it has to give us this weird, distorted version of reality where the Million Man March that's represented as the bonus army in reality is literally lily white, clean cut, all military haircuts, all nice hats, all nice suits. Like they are members of the petit bourgeois by appearances. They're the people that the system has really worked for up until this point. And the reason it's not working isn't the system, but because the great man at the head has sort of stopped caring. And so it's up to the president to start caring again and everything will work again which is one of the sort of weird central tenets of fascism is that they claim that the head representative, the Mussolini, the Hitler, comes from the people that's very conscious in their myth, while at the same time being a greater person amongst the people that can lead them to greatness again. 
it's just full of these exaggerated contradictions. You know, it takes the contradictions of capitalism and just blows them way out of proportion. Almost looks like the demographics and class composition of January 6th. <laughs> it, it very much does, by appearance. <laughs> and with that, let's get to Congress. So in this third clip, it follows very shortly after this clip in the trajectory of the movie. And this is where Hammond does the deed. He actually goes into Congress and just whips them into shape with his sheer audacity and his overwhelming triumph of will. Gentlemen, I am here as a representative of the American people in their hour of darkest despair. A plant cannot be made to grow by watering the top alone and letting the roots go dry. The people of this country are the roots of the nation and the sturdy trunk and the branches too. You have spent $4 billion only to aggravate adversity. I ask for $4 billion to restore buying power, stimulate purchases, restore prosperity. You have wasted precious days and weeks and years in futile discussion. We need action, immediate and effective action. Mr. President, there is a movement in Congress for your impeachment. Hardly time for making any requests, however small. Very well. I shall withdraw that request, but I would like to substitute another. I ask you, gentlemen, to declare a state of national emergency and to adjourn this Congress until normal conditions are restored. During the period of that adjournment, I shall assume full responsibility for the government. Mr. President, this is dictatorship. Senator Langham, words do not frighten me. But the United States of America is a democracy. We are not yet ready to give up the government of our father. You have given it up. You've turned your backs. You've closed your ears to the appeals of the people. You've been traitors to the concepts of democracy upon which this government was founded. I believe in democracy as Washington, Jefferson, and Lincoln believed in democracy. And if what I plan to do in the name of the people makes me a dictator, then it is a dictatorship based on Jefferson's definition of democracy, a government for the greatest good of the greatest number. This Congress refuses to adjourn. I think, gentlemen, you forget that I am still the president of these United States. And as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, it is within the rights of the President to declare the country under martial law. And the newspaper headline reads, Congress accedes to President's request, adjourns by overwhelming vote, Hammond dictator, Full powers placed in executives' hands. This scene is by far the most ham-fisted, ridiculous scene in the entire movie. They go from booing and coming within inches of impeaching him before he walks in the room to literally cheering when he declares himself dictator. <laughs> like the scene in Star Wars when democracy dies in the Senate. <laughs> one thing i was thinking of this being like this is like the right wing version of like the west wing <laughs> president bartlett he's like gives like a rousing speech and everyone's like oh yes we do have to do these things because 
we're, you know, obviously he's not saying he's a dictator. It's that's why it's the liberalist version, I guess. But it's the same impetus. I mean, you could see one version like with Bartlett and another version with a stand in for Trump, which I mean, you probably argue that this could be seen as today, you know, having the same effect on different sides of the fictitious political aisle. Right. Coded language. Yeah. The only time this movie ever comes up in popular culture anymore is whenever there's any sort of vague discussion about how the president is misbehaving or acting like an American Caesar. I just love this ideological underpinning of the entire American fascist movement that they just need somebody to go in there and say the speech and everything will start getting better. That all of the powers can just suddenly be vested in this one man and everybody in Congress is so weak-willed that they'll just bow down and let everything happen. It's just such a fantasy world. Yeah, for sure. I also like that there is embedded with, within this a pretty good descriptor of what actual socialism would be, and that is the government for the greatest good for the greatest number. Yeah. But like, again, in capitalism, that is literally unachievable because by definition, we have a government for the capitalist class and they will never be the greatest number. So, I mean, that sentiment, you know, with hearkening back to, to Jeffersonianism, is never going to be compatible with capitalism. That can literally only be true under a socialist context. It keeps using this language of Jeffersonian democracy, but what they really want to use, and I don't know where this self-censorship comes in, if they thought it was just more propaganda, but they're really thinking of the ancient Republican notion of democracy. Right. Roman Republic literally had a clause in there that a dictatorship could be declared within one year and then after a year, it would be resettled and the democracy would be restored. And that's where you get the story of Cincinnatus, the farmer that becomes dictator to sort out the Roman state and then return to his farm. That's not Jeffersonian democracy, either in the reality of the constitutional document that exists or in the ideal. But I guess it would have been a little too on the nose for him to cite back to the Roman state the way that Mussolini did when he declared his dictatorship. So not only is this a piece of propaganda, but it can't even get its own ideology across coherently. Well, it's hard when your ideology is complete bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Just call it like it is, Evan. I love it. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, no, it's true. I mean, it is just like it, it's all absurd. But the sad thing is, is that, again, talking about like maybe Trump being presented in like a similar scene. Unfortunately, I could see a lot of people really loving it right now. It's like that populist idea that's not actually going to serve anyone other than the people it's already serving. Yep. To take this in a slightly different direction, this sort of reminds me of a lot of the claims that are made about Biden's power to just snap his fingers and just instate the Green New Deal and that everything will just be okay as long as Daddy Biden just takes the reins of government and actually enacts these things that he has complete and utter control to do. It would be nice if he at least tried but I also understand that the system is not designed to overthrow capitalism. We would need more than just a president in there. Even if Bernie Sanders had been elected, even if Bernie Sanders was somehow even further to the left than he is, he still would not be able to do this alone. He would need an actual movement behind him. He would need actual power in the street behind him. It's just not how government works in terms of functioning as an extension of society. 
Like both sides want the, their leader to act like this, like a little bit of a dictator at the things they want done. But each thing will both be ineffectual and not actually do anything. Yeah, because ultimately, whatever side you're on, you have to do the work of political organizing. Right. It's just a little bit easier on the right. <laughs> it's easier. And then the unsaid thing about this propaganda is the massive amount of horrific blood curdling violence that's committed on the people in order to enact these policies. Nowhere in this movie is anybody violated except for evil, vile gangsters. There is no actual ethnic cleansing or culling of the crowds the way that Mussolini, Hitler, Franco, Pinochet had to do in order to exert their power. So this piece of propaganda is just garbage and I think we should leave it with the dustbin of history and move on to something much better, unless anybody has some parting words. It's left me speechless. So on to the Grapes of Wrath, the actual good piece of culture. So the Grapes of Wrath aim to capture the Great American Dust Bowl and the mass exodus from the plains, both of which are part of the larger refugee crisis of the 1930s. California native John Steinbeck, in 1936, published his novel, In Dubious Battle, wherein he dramatized the strike of fruit workers in California's Central Vet. The success of this novel led to the San Francisco News hiring him to report on the condition of worker camps built to accommodate these migrants. These migrants ventured to California, seeking opportunity and respite from the drought and soil erosion across the Midwest and Southern Plains, compounded by laissez-faire federal neglect and aggressive banking practices. Rather than get into the details of this history, we should jump into the representations. Steinbeck published The Grapes of Wrath in 1939 to immediate and overwhelming critical and popular acclaim. The book, which won a Pulitzer, represented a topical tragedy occurring in America and centered a working-class daily life and style heretofore unseen within a hit, mass-produced piece of culture. The sheer size of the impact and popularity of Steinbeck's work might be hard to imagine. Marxist critic Edwin Barry Burgum, in his 1947 work The Novel and the World's Dilemma, wrote, quote, Steinbeck met the social crisis within the artistic sphere as successfully as Roosevelt in the political sphere. Steinbeck, already a respected writer, became a superstar overnight whose stature only the legend of Roosevelt himself could match. As background to Steinbeck's representation, during the 1920s, when California growers exploited migrant workers from China, India, Mexico, the Philippines, and Japan, public sympathy could barely be aroused. But once native-born, white, Christian migrants from the American Mid and Southern Plains became the exploited, public attention and the New Deal came to the rescue. I'm just reminded here a little bit of the global refugee crisis in a lot of ways now. There's no sympathy from victims of American imperialism coming from Central America or anything like that. You know, when it comes to Ukrainian refugees who, you know, by the way, deserve our sympathy and our help, people fleeing war zones. And, but, you know, then suddenly the, the red carpet gets rolled out. Just a little bit of a interesting perspective, I guess, on the persistence of liberalism to keep racial segregation a pillar of how society is structured. I think that's an incredibly apt comparison. And it's not to discount, like you say, the Ukrainian struggle, nor is it in this instance to discount the real struggle of these people in the mid and southern plains. The Steinbeck himself appeared to have a troubled relationship with this outlook. 
In his reporting for the San Francisco News, he wrote, quote, Future farm workers are to be white and American. They are the best American stock. Oof. They are resourceful and intelligent Americans who have gone through the hell of the drought. They have strong, purposeful faces. The names of the new migrants indicate that they are of English, German, and Scandinavian descent. Oof. And this doesn't happen to white people. Maybe the Irish, but definitely not the English, German, and Scandinavian. Right. When published as a standalone collection, he entitled his articles, Their Blood is Strong. Mm. This in an era of rising social Darwinism. Their whiteness, found in their blood, represented their strength in comparison to the other migrants. To be fair to Steinbeck, he also lamented in the text of his articles the treatment of, quote, foreign peon labor, but the focus of the narrative in his articles and in Grapes of Wrath stayed squarely on white labor. Without spending too much time on the novel, I will say, speaking to my personal taste, Steinbeck is an incredible writer. Grapes of Wrath features an experimental structure wherein the trials and tribulations of the Jode family are interspersed with chapters which rip away from the narrative to focused on used car salesmen, journey of a turtle across a road, and entire chapters that might best be described as painting an abstract landscape with words. Capitalism, communism, nature, man, and God are all considered within its pages. I have to say, I started re-listening to it today, and I didn't get very far, but the chapter, I think it's chapter three, describing the journey of the turtle absolutely captivated me. <laughs> you got everything. You know, just, I guess, and kind of back up what you're saying, that he is an incredible writer. I am incredibly biased because I read this in high school, as most Americans do. Evan, did you read it? Yep, I did. Yeah, I was talking to my wife about this earlier, how I feel like it's one of the few books that people today would say, like, oh, I still remember this book. Like, I remember seeing the movie in high school or whatever. I feel like it's that top tier but Steinbeck and Hemingway are like the two authors that people generally remember from their high school. Yeah, what's just unfortunate is that the way most of us are brought up in high school is that I think that these books sometimes find us at the wrong time. I don't want to speak for people that are brought up with more radical upbringings. I just think that they're fewer and further between in America today. So a lot of books that I come across now that I'm like, man, I really need to go back and reread that with a completely different lens. For sure. It's interesting you mentioned Hemingway because, you know, obviously I went the equivalent of British high school. We read Hemingway, but we did not read Steinbeck. I think internationally, mm -hmm. Hemingway is a more revered. I don't mind his books just as entertainment. I've read most of them, I think. I've never read a Steinbeck book. It's been on my list, but I just haven't read it yet. I mean, credit to Hemingway. He's also an incredible writer. Just, yeah. The ideology found in those novels Yes. Is far more questionable than the ideology found in the notable works of Steinbeck. Yeah. I know that he's also a very inconsistent writer, so this is not a general endorsement of all of Steinbeck's writing. Steinbeck and Grapes of Wrath set out to create a novel to capture the whole of the working class culture in a time and space. In this, he failed. But if you accept the limits of his accomplishment, if you consider it representing a single facet of white working class culture, it is among the single most powerful and beautiful pieces of literature produced in the English language. So moving on to the movie. Similar to the novel, 20th Century Fox published Daryl F. Zenuck's Grapes of Wrath 
to near universal critical and popular acclaim. I believe it won at least one Oscar, correct? For Ma Jode's portrayal. Yeah, the best supporting actress. He was awesome. <laughs> yeah. It, it is a complete opposite of that piece of garbage Gabriel movie. Like the acting is great. The cinematography is great. Everything about it just really holds up. Most everything. So Otis Ferguson noted that although the antagonisms in Xanuck's film centers on those between the migrants and the California mobs and vigilantes, the core conflict is framed as an act of nature rather than one of capitalism. Consider the opening title card, which states, quote, This is a story of one farmer's family driven from their fields by natural disasters and economic changes beyond anyone's control. Gone are the overt anti-capitalist representation of greedy bankers of the novel. In the movie, the primary villain is nature, while the main hero is the New Deal. At least that's true at first glance. In fact, the opening title card doesn't appear anywhere in the original script. Responding to a question about the House Un-American Committee's, the HUAC, charge of communist propaganda coming out of Hollywood, Popular Front director Joseph Losey replied, quote, It's quite absurd, because there were no films made in Hollywood that had any real left-wing impact at all, with the possible exception of The Grapes of Wrath. No doubt The Grapes of Wrath represented among the most successful examples of Popular Front fiction. So how can we thus use this to understand the limits of representing left politics through mass cultural production? So we're going to go through a few scenes. We'll start with Tom Jode and Casey finding Molly in the farmhouse of his former home. What happened? How come they got to get off? We lived here 50 years, same place. Everybody's got to get off. Everybody's leaving, going out to California. Your folks, my folks, everybody's folks. Everybody said me. I ain't getting off. Who done it? Listen, that's someone who done it. The dusters. They started anyways. Blowing like this year after year. Blowing the land away. Blowing the crops away. Blowing us away now. You crazy? Some say I am. You want to hear how it happened? That's what I'm asking, you ain't it? Well, the way it happens, the way it happened to me, a man come one day. Back to the matter, Muley. After what them dust has done to the land, the tenant system don't work no more. They don't even break even, much less show a profit. Why, one man and a tractor can handle 12 or 14 of these places. You just pay them a wage and take all the crop. Yeah, but uh, we couldn't do on any less than what our share is now. Well, the children ain't getting enough to eat as it is. And they're so ragged. We'd be ashamed if everybody else's children wasn't the same way. I can't help that. All I know is I got my orders. They told me to tell you to get off, and that's what I'm telling you. You mean get off my own land? Oh, don't go to blaming me. It ain't my fault. Whose fault is it? You know who owns the land, the Shawnee Land and Cattle Company. And who's the Shawnee Land Cattle Company? It ain't nobody. It's a company. They got a president, ain't they? They got somebody who knows what a shotgun's for, ain't they? Well, son, it ain't his fault because the bank tells him what to do. All right. Where's the bank? Tulsa. What's the use of picking on him? He ain't nothing but the manager. And he's half crazy himself trying to keep up with his orders from the east. Then who do we shoot? Brother, I don't know. If I did, I'd tell you. I just don't know who's to blame. 
I'm right here to tell you, mister, there ain't nobody gonna push me off my land. My grandpa took up this land 70 years ago. My pa was born here. We was all born on it. And some of us was killed on it. And some of us died on it. And that's what makes it iron. Being born on it and working on it and dying, dying on it and not no piece of paper with a writing on it. <laughs> One of the things that's before this scene, I think it's right when he's uh, hitchhiking to get back to his farm right before this, the driver of the truck like looks at his hand and, and he's, he's a tradesman because of the way his hand is like, he's an actual worker. And so I feel like that was like a nice foreshadowing of just the fact that these people are actual laborers. They're working hard on the land and they're not dressed well. They're dressed like farmers. They're dressed, they're sweating. Like, you know, they're just dingy. Yeah. The actors have dirt on their faces, dirt on their clothes. They look the part. And the man in the car he looks like he could be standing at the Million Man March. He's got his nice tight-fitted hat, his collared shirt, his tie, his suit. I think it ties into like one of my favorite parts of that whole thing, which is like, who do we shoot? Who do we kill? Who is responsible for kicking us off the land, right? And like, despite this guy coming in well-dressed in his nice car and everything, it's just like, hey, I'm not to blame. This is just my function. Right. So then where do we go from there? Do we go to the banker, the guy that runs the bank? Well, I mean, he's just taking orders. He's got nothing to do with it either. Right. And I think there's a really good inherent critique of capitalism and also like an inherent real representation of like working class rage in that sentiment. And then also showing kind of where a critique of capitalism and organizing and education needs to kind of step in to kind of bridge that gap. Because the fact of the matter is, is like you can't just shoot jeff bezos in theory <laughs> to end capitalism it's a system that you're fighting right all of these people that are coming in are just acting a role and maybe they've lost class consciousness along the way but just shooting this individual actor and i know there's another scene where the guy actually comes in to bulldoze it and i think it serves a similar function where it's like hey i'm just kind of an actor here within this broad system and i'm just kind of choosing to do this because i have to get mine and survive as well we see this working class rage. And in the film, I would argue, we are totally meant to sympathize with this rage, this downtrodden outlashing against whatever representation of what's harmed them. And this, I think, goes to point out one of the first contradictions in the movie. So like I said, there is this placard at the very beginning of the movie, which states it's just nature that's causing these problems. Yet in that scene, he very explicitly says, the wind might be one part of it, the wind started it, but it's not the wind. Something much bigger is happening here. Yeah, I mean, it's like the same idea that he's talking about this person in the fancy car. It's like, oh, the person who's really at fault is this nameless, faceless corporation, which is the same as like, well, we don't know who the, is to blame for the dust bowl. We have theories, but we can't really pin it down to pull this into something that you were saying earlier, Evan, 
there are limits to what can be portrayed in a movie under an instance where there is censorship, yeah. where there are things that can't be said. And I think this is one of the instances where they can't directly say that this is the issue of capitalism, but it certainly leads you to believe that there is a larger system at play here that has nothing to do with individuals at the head of it. Yeah. Obviously, when this was made, you could only see things from the perspective of white people, right? Most people in Hollywood and everything else would see, you know, he says, we've been here for 70 years. We died on this land and all this stuff. Well, there's like a whole group of people that we killed off that land prior to white people farming there. And the conditions of the Dust Bowl and everything else, did that occur before like capitalist farming when it was Native Americans looking after the land? And I think this film, similar to the last film, I don't think there's anything but white people in this film. There's no consideration of the immigrant farmers in California, and there's also no consideration of the fact that a whole nation of people were displaced from this land prior to white people farming. And they didn't have deeds that required to show ownership of the land. I mean, there's a real critique there. I mean, this is an excellent point that you brought up. It doesn't change that that person's visceral reaction and the attachment that he feels, right? But again, to go back to what I was saying, this whole structure like that, liberalism dominated by a white elite set up that's ultimately like displacing these people who took this land as part of the whole project to begin with. Right. It actually brings me back to the Hayes code of the things you're not allowed to say. So this is directly from the list of things that are not really permitted, or if you use them, they're supposed to be treated in a way that's without vulgarity. It's like the specific term. Hmm. So one of them is your attitude towards public characters and institutions the way you critique America, the title card, not specifically saying who is to blame. That's literally part of the Hayes Code where you can't blame capitalism. You can't blame America. It's not their fault. There, there's a whole bunch of other very funny um, lists of here. One of them actually relates to the idea of committing murder. And like they're specifically asking, like, who can we shoot? But they don't say, like, who can we kill? Hmm. Yeah, you have to find like artistic ways around it, which I guess is what they've done here. Right. And I think that there's one really big artistic point that they've done here. To Steve's point, who do they say actually owns the land? The cattle company, right? The cattle and farming company. Yeah. It's the Shawnee Land and Cattle Company. <laughs> what a coincidence that that company would be named after the native people that would had previously inhabited the land. Yeah. But they're all gone now. <laughs> I would argue that was their sort of subtle jab stating the thing that they probably were not permitted to talk about by throwing that in there. Yeah, it's interesting. And to a smaller point, later in the movie, they actually do a pan over when they're driving across the country and they pass by what appears to be native people. It's only for about three seconds. If you blink, you miss it. But there does seem to be a consciousness that native people do play a major part in this history. This scene especially reminded me a lot of when we were just in Scotland, we learned about the history of like the evictions of tenant farmers by you know, basically the clan chiefs who were loyal to the crown. There would be like fads of sheep farming was more profitable and then crop farming was more profitable and they would basically just evict people off the land and bring people on who were willing to do this. One guy with a tractor can do more than, than you're doing. So, you know, it's the same type of thing. You're, you're getting people who are, quote unquote, unproductive off the land and bringing in 
whatever capital deems productive at the time. And I think that's a pretty good introduction to this next clip. What happened? They come. They come and pushed me off. They come with the cats. What? The cats, the caterpillar tractors. The scene dissolves into a montage of tractors. Tractors looming over hillocks, flattening fences through gullies, the drivers looking like robots with goggles, dusks masks over their mouth and nose, one after the other, crossing and recrossing, as if to convey the impression that this was an invasion of machine men from some other world. And for every one of them, there was 10, 15 families thrown right out of their homes. A hundred folks, and no place to live but on the road. The Rances, the Peterses, the Perrys, the Joneses, one right after the other, they got thrown out. Half the folks, you and me know, thrown right out into the road. Because Evan's here, I'm going to make this uh, reference. But it reminds me a lot of the deforestation around Isengard and Fangorn in The Lord of the Rings by Saruman. It's a trope raging against industrialization and its effects in a lot of ways that we see in a lot of works of cinema. Those machines are meant to represent a larger system, something inhuman, something that's invading, something that's more cherished. I like the Lord of the Rings pull there, but the one thing I was also thinking of with AI being technology that's now coming into bloom or whatever you want to call it, automation will never actually lead to better lives for people and less work and the same conditions. It's just going to lead people to be more destitute like they are in this movie. They have something that can make their lives easier, do the task quicker, probably cheaper, and yet they receive no benefit as just the individual work. Workers will not benefit from technology increases in capitalism. Yeah. And that end is the key modifier within capitalism, right? Because you could apply this technology to be more efficient with farming and getting food, making people's lives easier, better, working less. But in this context, when the people don't own the tractors and they don't own the homes in common, then yeah, AI just like tractors and and large-scale industrial machinery before them, we're going to get squeezed out and displaced and squeezed for even more surplus value. Marx actually quotes John Stuart Mill, who writes, It is questionable if all the mechanical inventions yet made have lightened the day's toil of any human being. And that's because Stuart Mill couldn't get beyond the conception of the system as it existed, whereas Marx says... Obviously, it's not going to lighten any individual human being's toil because the system is always going to adjust in order to create the most amount of profit and put people out on the street. And I would argue this film is definitely making the Marx argument, not the Mill argument. You see like the like the destitute everyone again in this film is white. They don't really show any anyone of any other race. And And in the note that I wrote down, it's sort of like. White people getting a taste of what the indigenous people and what black people have been dealing with for centuries. And now they're finally seeing what they have to go through to survive. And they're like, oh, well, damn, this sucks. But learn nothing from it. I did write something similar, Evan, and it was much not to discredit your point at all, but I just wrote it like as primitive accumulation or enclosure or internal colonialism, just like quickly watching that. 
remaking that whole thing, right? Like we kind of set the white settlers loose on all this. And now we're advancing the project and closing all this, monopolizing this even further, right? And now again, to go back to our conversation on food, I mean, again, we're talking about a fictionalized representation of this, right? But the result is now we've got five companies in control of basically 90% of the profits generated from the land. Yeah. It was interesting, like right after this clip you just played, when they show the conversation with the guy who's driving the Caterpillar tractor. but it's just one of the guys they know who's like, your problems are my problems. I got to feed my family. I think you see a lot more solidarity later, whereas at first it's just like the individualism that capitalism kind of promotes in people. He's just doesn't care about, you know, kicking probably one of his friends off their land. I wrote down he was a scab, basically. Yeah. And he even says, as he pulls out the shotgun and points it at him, I think he says, you're not going to shoot me. You know, if you shoot me, you're going to jail and they're going to bring somebody out the next night. You ain't going to blow nobody nowhere. First place they'd hang in, you know it. For another, it wouldn't be two days before they'd send another guy up here to take my place. Now go on, get out of the way. Just pulling on the sort of larger argument that it's not any individual that's being exploited by this. It's not their fault that it's happening. Although they're clearly not showing any kind of solidarity in this situation because they're being driven literally to the edge of starvation. And I think that's as good as any introduction to this next clip, which appears just before they leave for California. Now listen to me, Grandpa. Listen to me just a minute. <laughs> and I ain't listening either. I told you what I was going to do, and I don't give a hootin' how there's oranges and grapes a crowdin' the fella out of bed. I ain't going to California. This is my country and I belong here. My dirt. No good, but it's it's mine. Oh, mine. And this just very quickly pulls into a more troubled argument that I think the film is trying to make in terms of how it understands people's connection to land. So it wants to sort of make a subversive argument about land and people's belonging and connection to it. I just really don't know where it's going. Like this generational argument of some kind, but I don't really know what it is saying about it. It's that he has like more of a connection to the land because he's been on it for so long, which to what you're talking about with, you know, looking at indigenous people and the name of that Shawnee, it's like, you know, the, 
it's my land, my dirt, maybe referring to, in some sense, like the people who actually were here where we took away their land and their dirt and were dragged away or murdered. Could be a stretch. I mean, I don't think it misses the mark, though, in terms of what people would have been feeling. You know, like if you live somewhere and you work somewhere, like despite all of the complications, the historical complications that come into play, like that dude in that moment is still a very sympathetic figure. Right. Because you understand his history. He probably doesn't think a whole hell of a lot about, you know, the history that led up to him being there. He just knows that he bled and sweat in this place and he'd like to die here. And again, we can obviously and we should get into a critique of the history and understand all that. But like, again, in that moment, that guy is still a very sympathetic figure. Yeah, maybe that's all it is. Is this just an accurate representation of how individuals like him would have felt at that? I moment? mean, that's how I kind of looked at it. You know, it almost like was one of those scenes in the movie. I mean, there's a lot of them in here, but it's one of those that like I really thought something like as problematic as grandpa probably is. You know, there, there's, there, 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 you know, there, there, we still have sympathy. We, we have sympathy, you know, and we want to help working class people of all stripes and bring them along, you know. So in that moment, it's stop crying, Grandpa. This is actually indigenous land. I mean, yes, that's true. But right. what's that going to do for Grandpa in that moment? You're definitely right. It's about sort of meeting people where they're at, understanding this as a piece of culture that's representing reality. Yeah, and it is troubled. Like, I want to emphasize that. I'm not saying you don't ever have those conversations, but I think at that really desperate moment, it's there's a really human way to look at that and interpret it. To make it in a comparison to the previous movie, where they're really papering over the sort of contradictions of ideology, this is sort of looking at it at its face. Like you said, this character may not be the kind of person that we sympathize with on a personal level in terms of how we want individuals to understand the situation but we can totally sympathize with them as human beings even though it's a fictional character it's truly a slice of reality unlike anything that went on in the previous movie there's nothing real about any of those characters so to move on to the next scene and this one is uh, particularly distressing we're from arkansas had me a store there a kind of a general notion store when the farms went, the stores went too. I had as nice a little store as you ever saw. I sure did hate to give it up. Well, you can't tell. I figure when we get out there and get work and maybe get us a piece of growing land near water, it might not be so bad at that. That's right. Paying good wages, I hear. We can all get work. It can't be no worse than home. You all must have a pot of money. No, we ain't got no money. But there's plenty of us to work, and we're all good men. Get good wages out there, and put it all together, and we'll be all right. <laughs> good wages, eh? Picking oranges and peaches? Well, we aim to take whatever they got. What's so funny about that? <laughs> What's so funny about it? I've just been out there. I've been and seen it. I'm going back and starve, because I'd rather starve all over at once. Say, what do you think you're talking about? I got a handbill here says they're paying good wages. And I seen in the papers that they need pickers. All right. Go on. Nobody's stopping you. Hey, but what about this? I ain't going to rile you. Go on. Wait a minute, buddy. You just done some jackassing. <laughs> you can't shut up now. The handbill said they need 800 pickers. You laugh and say they don't. Which one's a liar? Now, how many of you all got them handbills? I got one. Come on. How many? I got one. We all got one. We all I got, got one. one. Well, what did I, I prove? 
There you are. Same yellow handbill. 800 pickers wanted. All right, the man wants 800 men. So he prints 5,000 handbills, and maybe 20,000 people see them. And maybe two or 3,000 people start west on account of that handbill. Two or 3,000 people that are crazy with worry, heading out for 800 jobs. Now, does that make sense? Say, what are you, a troublemaker? You sure you ain't one of them labor fakes? I, I swear I ain't, mister. Oh, don't you go around here trying to stir up any trouble. I tried to tell you folks what it took me a year to find out. Took two kids dead. Took my wife dead to show me. But nobody could tell me neither. I can't tell you about them little fellas laying in the tent with their bellies swelled out and just skin over their bones, a shivering and a whining like pups, and me a running around looking for work. Not for money, not for wages, just for a cup of flour and a spoon of lard. Then the coroner come. Them children died of heart failure, he said. He put it down in his paper. Heart failure? And that little belly stuck out like a pig bladder? This is like no critique, just, just from a, a film perspective. I mean, like the acting in this film. I mean, I haven't watched a ton of really old films, but like the acting in this is better than most things I've seen recently. I mean, it's, it certainly like brings up a lot more emotions like that, that dude there, like that was, yeah, I mean, it was super emotional and like it, it made me, it, I think you feel a lot more there than you do in a lot of films I've seen recently. I mean, I, there's obviously really good actors and that do the same thing now, but it, it's few and far between and maybe the same as back then, especially when you compare it to that Gabriel movie. <laughs> I thought the whole film is, is, is very impressive. The acting and the cinematography. Yeah, it just stirs up a lot of emotion, how well this is acted. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I felt the same way. It was just like, wow. I mean, especially like just like the up close shots of like people's faces that really capture the emotion and the angst that they're feeling in a moment is really well done. I was going to take this in a direction of like actually drawing a parallel to today a little bit because there's a highway and there's a giant eagle, which is the local grocery store in Pittsburgh, right? And you can see this store from the highway. And I drive by it a lot. And there's this giant sign on it that says, nobody wants to work anymore. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to make this parallel exactly, but I think there's something here. They're advertising work. And we know that people want to go back to work. They're applying for jobs. And yet companies continue to put out this narrative that nobody's coming to apply. Nobody wants to take these jobs, et cetera, et cetera. And either people are coming in the jobs and they've got more people, but the narrative still serves their purpose or they just don't want to pay people what they actually are worth in this day and age. And it's manipulation by business owners and the capitalist class to basically take advantage of really desperate people. And I think we saw that in COVID through messaging that was kind of bolstered by the capitalist class. And we're kind of seeing it almost being realized here that, hey, we're basically falling prey to a targeted agenda by these large landowners out here in that case. What you're describing is the reserve army of labor as a necessary aspect of capitalism, that they actually require there to be a significant percentage of unemployment so that they can forcibly drive down wages in order to create jobs that can be done at the greatest level of exploitation. 
The Fed chairman has literally said over the past year that they need unemployment to go up so that things will be better, essentially, for Wall Street. Like, they're not hiding this fact anymore. I had a similar idea as you, Nick. I was like, well, they want lots of people to come so they can then drop the wage down even lower. So become more desperate. And that's the key thing is they need that desperation. They need that desperation for people to step in and like see no other alternative, but to essentially take on the role of like a scab, somebody that will work for lesser wages. Right. And like, again, we can extrapolate this out to migrant labor that we talk about here. Right. Like we're again, victims of U.S. imperialism are coming up and doing these intensive manual agricultural jobs for lesser wages because they feel like they have no other fucking choice to take care of their families, right? So again, we're seeing it in this context play out. Again, all of this artificial demand is being created through, again, a concerted project to get people desperate, to get people moving, to get people to buy into it, right? Only to be disappointed or else fed wages, which can't even feed their families after this arduous journey. Those signs that you see in front of the grocery store that say nobody wants to work directly contradict the fact that we have, according to the Labor Statistics Bureau, the lowest unemployment rate in over 50 years. Now, those statistics are incredibly troubled, but the fact being that those statistics have always been troubled in the same way for 50 years means that that number can actually stand in for something. Capitalism requires there to be unemployment in order to drive down wages. It's not that nobody wants to work. It's that nobody wants to work for seven fifty an hour anymore because unemployment is so low because so many people are working. The wages are going up because the power then shifts towards labor when unemployment is low. That's why the Fed chair is trying to raise unemployment because then the power shifts back to the capitalists. This actually reminds me of like, you mentioned the grocery store and I think about going to larger grocery stores and they have less aisles open and they'll have more of these automated self-checkouts. And it's the same like thing, like, okay, they've now created a technology that makes it so they don't need people to be at the checkout just to kind of watch to make sure people don't steal stuff, which I would never suggest that anyone do who's listening. (laughs) Again, it doesn't actually benefit the workers in any way. It's not giving them any support of any kind and the profit of all these companies is through the roof on top of all of these things too. So the people in this movie who they're like the peach picker, the farms, they're selling millions of peaches and they're making money and they're just driving that wage down. Exactly. Either the managers or the owners of this, they're portrayed sometimes where like people are driving by in nice cars and fancy suits and they're saying, Hey, we got work up here. They're portraying this kind of class and what they look like. And they're doing fine in the midst of the Great Depression, aren't they? You men want to work? Sure we want to work. Where's it at? Tavares County. Fruit softening up. Need a lot of fruit pickers. You doing the hiring? Well, I'm contracting the land. What's Japan? Well, can't tell exactly yet. About uh, 30 cents, I guess. Why can't you tell? You took the contract, didn't you? That's true, but it's key to the price. Might be a little more, might be a little less. Yeah, they look a lot like the man in the car that comes up to Moly to kick him off his land. They're always in the car. They're always surrounded by police officers. They've got their suit on. They've got their tie. They've got their fitted hat. You can tell they're not missing meals. It's very clear who the villains are in this movie. Even if the system itself is kept kind of obfuscated, they don't name what's going on wrong here. 
but it's clear who you're supposed to sympathize with. So this is after one of those incidences where Preacher Casey actually attacks one of the well-dressed sheriffs and he's driven out of town. So Tom has gotten into the bad camp where they're being abused and doing work for decent wage, but they're clearly something is going wrong. So Tom is snooping around and stumbles upon a campsite. Casey, what if it ain't Tom Jode? Hiya, boy. I thought you was in jail. No, they just run me out of town. Come on in. Tom Jode. This the fella you've been talking about? That's him. What are you doing here, Tom? Working, picking peaches. But I heard some fellas shouting when we come in. I come out to find out what's going on. What's it all about? This here's a strike. Whoa, five cents a box ain't much, but a fella can eat. Five cents? They paying you five cents? Sure, we made a buck since midday. Looky, Tom, we come here to work. They tell us it's gonna be five cents, but there's a whole lot of us. So the man says two and a half cents. Well, a fella can't even eat on that, and if he's got kids, so he says we won't take it. So they drive us off. Now they're paying you five cents. But if they bust this strike, you think they'll pay five? No, paying five now. They'll get two and a half cents just the minute we're gone. You know what that is. One ton of peaches picked and carried for a dollar. That way you can't even buy enough food to keep you alive. Tell them to come out with us, Tom. Them peaches is ripe. Two days out and they'll pay us, pay us all five, maybe seven. Well, they won't. They're getting five now. That's all they care about. But the moment they ain't strike breaking, they won't get no five. Next thing you know, you'll be out. They got it all fixed down to a T. Well, as soon as the harvest is in, you're a migrant worker. Afterwards, just a bum. Five they're getting now. That's all they're interested in. I know exactly what Pod say. He just say it's none of his business. Guess that's right. You'll have to take a beating for you'll know. Take a beating? We was out of food. Tonight we had meat. Not much, but we had it. You think Pa's gonna give up his meat on, a, on account of some other fellas? Rosa Sharon needs milk. You think Ma's gonna starve that baby just on account of fellas yelling outside a gate? Tom, you gotta learn like I'm learning. I don't know it right yet myself, but I'm trying to find out. That's why I can't ever be a preacher again. Preacher's got to know. I don't know. I got to ask. I love that scene because when Casey says, you know what that is, there's a long pregnant pause and you really just want to yell out, that's capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) And instead he says the price of the peaches. Is this right before or right after the, the scene where they're buying from the store that's on the working camp like they're getting paid shit and then they buy it back at higher prices that are being sold to them by the people that they can't even afford i mean it's i wrote in my notes like that's basically like now where you're getting paid 750 an hour and you can't even buy the products from the store you're actually working at it's capitalism (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah i mean it reminded me of two things one is like old mining towns Cause there'd be like the company store at the mining town. So right. all the miners again would be mining and then you'd buy everything from the company store or you'd buy it on credit. And then you're just going into debt to the company you're working for it. And it reminded me like 
this is not modern, nothing currently, but in the future. You know that book, I, I think I gave it to you, Nick, as well, mm-hmm. The Warehouse. I don't know if either Levi or, or Evan have read it, but it's like in the future and there's been major climate disaster and basically like an Amazon-esque company just rules yeah. the country. Becomes the company town. But it's like the company country. Right. Everybody in the country works for this place and they, you all live there. And everything there, all your wages are just going into the stores that they have in these compounds where all their workers live. Just reminded me of that as well. And like any good dystopia, it's just an exaggeration of current conditions. Yeah. But, but barely an exaggeration anymore. Right. Yeah. I just really like Preacher Casey's kind of like internal struggle because we didn't really cover this. One of the first scenes in the movie is... Preacher Casey catching Tom up basically on his own like trials and tribulations. And, you know, they have their own problems about him, like betting girls down that are full of the Holy Spirit. Why, at my meetings, I used to get the girls a glory shot until they about pass out. Then I go to comfort them. I'd always end up by loving them. But again, that's probably for another (laughs) supplemental episode, maybe, you know, he talks about kind of like losing his way with preaching. Right. And you kind of see in this scene, like he's kind of finding his North Star and his orientation again in class consciousness, because we have preacher Casey and a few lines of dialogue basically articulating what we've been saying, you know, when we're talking about the theories of Marx as it relates to, you know, the reserve army of labor how capitalism plays into this and actually suppresses these things and how the capitalists actually work to, you know, force people into conditions of precarity. Right. And he's kind of doing the work of agitation and organizing to try to get Tom on board to see that and to break through these barriers of individualism. Cause Tom comes out and says, look, my dad doesn't, he's not going to give a shit. We had meat tonight for the first time and God knows how long. Right. And those are real things that you have to work through and deal with, right? And it's, the, it's a theme we've touched on again and again, where it's like, how do you get people to get past to the point of like, hey, fuck you, got mine, and realize that you're the next one to, you know, get pushed off the property. You're the next one that's going to be squeezed down to 2.5 cents an hour. Or in our case, you're the next one that's going to be put into bankruptcy as a result of a medical crisis in your family and you don't have health insurance or something like that, despite you feeling okay right now. The character of Casey, I, I think, is one of the more fascinating characters in the movie. Yeah. In a sort of more ham-fisted way, he's clearly the sort of priced figure in the limited religious representation that's in the movie. Casey well embodies this idealized idea of the organizer. He doesn't say that he knows. His primary thing that he claims to know is that he knows to listen. And he knows that the people are capable of organizing once they've also started listening. And that's the notion of being aware of the people you're organizing and agitating for. You're not telling them what they should feel, what they should think, and what they should do. You're trying to get together and create a true democracy in organization and using the theory that everybody might know collectively together in order to create a plan and to agitate further and to continually get this ball rolling. That's sort of the grand contradiction that a liberal might view in this is they don't understand communism as a true democratic concept, that it's actually about getting more and more people involved in the actual process of creating democracy rather than the sort of Gabriel over the White House idea where you need this great man, you need this leader, you need this person that's going to go out and organize and tell the people what to do. 
and Gabriel over the White House is clearly the far right aspect of that. But I would argue, as I believe Evan did, that you would see this as well in the West Wing. This is a liberal and conservative and fascist notion of what organizing looks like. It's the great man organizing from above. Casey's basically, he's kind of building his own little revolutionary party of sorts, getting people to buy into this and support them because the greater number you have, the better chance you have of succeeding, just like all the strikes we have now. And just to highlight in the next scene after this conversation in the tent, he's bludgeoned to death by a cop. Listen, you fellas, you don't know what you're doing. You're helping to starve kids. Ah, shut up, you dirty hate You've killed him. Yeah, serves him right, too. He's bludgeoned to death by the fascist fucking jackboots. Yep. But his message and his agitation carries on with Tom. And Tom, in self-defense, murders a cop who has just murdered his friend and hit him in the face. And of course, the way that it's portrayed by the police is that they were completely acting in self-defense. Cops don't come out looking very good in this movie. And that's how Tom got his name, Tommy the Tanky. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was interesting, and I don't know if it's a choice by Steinbeck or the director or if it's just the times, but I thought it was interesting and, and accurate that the police are portrayed as police, not like Pinkertons. They're not private security. They're actual cops to try and soften it a little bit. They could have chosen to use Pinkertons, but I think it was a good choice not to. I think some of them are private guards because some of them they call tin shields. Some of them they call cops. Some of them they call police. Like they make a distinction. But I think the point is the movie is trying to tell you that these distinctions are not a difference. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like the local cops basically working for the local peach magnate. Ultimately, you guys are both saying like can serve the same function as a Pinkerton. And they're just as dangerous in these contexts. To show that they're working with uh, the peach guy, like they turn up at that dance, like at a prescribed time, because they've got people there that are supposed to start a riot just so they can get in. Right. I think that's a good introduction to the next clip. I read through the script and there's not actually that many differences that are significant between the script and the film itself. We already mentioned one with the placard at the beginning, but this scene actually features a very significant cut from the script to the film. It starts out with a pretty insignificant cut, I think for time's sake, where there's just more exposition. But I'll read the exposition from the script just because it does add a little bit to the story. They're working on the side of the road, digging a ditch to put in a concrete pipe. Tom Jode, exulting. If this don't feel good, Wilkie, chuckling. Wait till about 11 o'clock, see how good she feels then. Tom, seems like a nice friendly fella to work for, too. Tim. A lot of these little farmers, mighty nice guys. Trouble is they're little. They ain't got much say-so. Tom. Sure looks like my lucky day anyway, getting some work at last. And then here, the film picks up. Hiya, Mr. Thomas. Morning. How are you? Morning. Nice job. Listen here. Maybe I'm going to talk myself out of my farm, but I like you fellas. You're good workers. So I'm going to tell you. You live over in the government camp, don't you? Yes, sir. And you have dances over there every Saturday night. We sure do. Well, look out next Saturday night. What's the matter? 
I'm head to the Central Committee over there. I gotta know. Well, don't tell I told you. Listen. Citizens angered at red agitators burn another squatter's camp and order agitators to leave the county. Listen, what is these reds, anyway? Every time you turn around, somebody calling somebody else a red. What is these reds, anyway? So there's a line cut from the movie, and it's very clearly edited out. Wilkie, chuckling. Well, I tell you, there was a fella up the country named King, got about 30,000 acres in a cannery and a winery, and he's all the time talking about reds. Driving the country to ruin, he says. Got to get rid of them, he says. Well, there was a young fella just come out, and he was listening one day. He kind of scratched his head, and he says, Mr. King, what is these reds you all the time talking about? Well, sir, Mr. King says, young man, a red is any fella that wants 30 cents an hour when I'm paying 25. And then, jarringly, the movie goes, Oh, I ain't talking about that one way or the other. All I'm saying is that there is going to be a fight at the camp Saturday night, and there'll be deputies ready to go in. Now, go on with your work. Maybe I've talked myself into trouble, but your folks like us, and I like you. We won't tell who told. Thank you. All right. There ain't gonna be no fight, either. That explicitly names, you know, who is presenting a real solution to the problem, right? It's like, we're not fighting for five cents when they're paying five cents or two and a half cents. We're fighting for ten. And I think it's a good representation of like, okay, unions are fighting, you know, and we should all get behind unions. But in our present day, unions are fighting still for like a slice of the pie. The communists are pushing for the whole fucking pie. And the way it's articulated is it sounds like the most common sense solution possible. It doesn't sound radical whatsoever. Do we presume they, they filmed it as it was in the script and someone later on said like, you can't have this in the movie. That's how I envision this going. That would be my guess, because you can see the edit there, and you can tell that the farmer, when he reacts, is reacting to a much bigger statement than the one that Tom Joad makes, where he just asks a simple question. He appears to be acting as though he's responding to the script. This movie can't blame capitalism, and it can't make the solution be the thing that America is explicitly fighting against, although technically the Cold War hasn't begun at this point, but they already know the enemy, in scare quotes, that they're fighting. So this would give them actual power in some sense, like saying like, oh, well, if that's what the Reds believe, then I guess I'm a Red. That would be a bridge too far for a sympathetic character in a mainstream Hollywood movie to say, wow, these Reds don't seem so bad. They've really got my back. But they can talk about unions and they can talk about organizing in right. the abstract. And I mean, it goes to on like a broader level, like what we do on this podcast a lot and so many other podcasts do as well. When we talk about, you know, what socialism has achieved in other places, it's like you have to obfuscate that. You can't let people know the reality. You can't look at things honestly um, with all their problems and all their critically here all their successes for working people, right? Because then people would be like, well, that doesn't sound so bad, especially because we see like, again, we see this working class consciousness come up and be articulated in very natural ways here. And I think we've all experienced that in our own lives as well. It's like people get this whole idea that like this dude 
that seems to be doing okay right now in the midst of a crisis for my family, he's the problem. He's trying to tell me that somebody else is the problem, but I'm looking at him as having control of this entire situation. And, you know, these people are saying that he's the problem and I'm starting to agree with that. And whether I'm a red or not, that idea can all be damned. Like, I don't care. <laughs> An interesting thing culturally and I don't know a lot about, again, this films from this time period or, or what the culture thought, but it, from the script, and again, it's not in the film, but from the script, it's the Reds want more money. And then in that Gabriel film, the workers, they just want it to work. So you've got this theme then of whatever, either the right or a film like this, a more sympathetic film, not saying people don't want to work. They want more. They want what they're worth. If you look at the right now, and I'm going from like all the shitty podcasts I listen to and all the other stuff, <laughs> communists and socialists are painted totally differently now. They don't want to work. They just want free shit. Like that's what the right fucking thinks socialism is now. They just think these people don't want to work. They just want to sit at home and, and do nothing and get everything for free, which is like, <laughs> it's so stupid. Like I was listening to that dickhead Tim Pool the other day. He was like, socialists just don't understand. People work to get their the value of their labor. And that's what and I was that's like. That's the definition of what we understand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, you're describing Marx, you fucking idiot. <laughs> it's just interesting how there seemed to be more of an understanding of what we actually stood for back then than, than there is now. So going back to Gabriel over the White House, President Hammond states in that speech, I feel certain the last thing you men want is charity money for idleness, and the demoralization which follows in its wake. I don't think much has changed in fascism. I think they have the same line, just under different pretexts, and probably much more visceral and specific, because they have a lot more race baiting they need to do than they did back then. But to Steve's point, I think that the moneyed interest, the capitalist class, always have a good understanding of what their enemy is actually asking for. Right. And that's reflected, I think, in what Steve is saying a lot. And then just the stupidity of like the Tim pools is reflected back in like the ridiculousness of that piece of garbage. Gabriel. Yeah. I wonder how a podcast like Tim pool, whatever his garbage podcast is called, would try to articulate the problems with Gabriel over the White House. I'm telling you, dude, they might look at that and say, oh, this actually looks great if Trump went into Congress and did that. Oh, yeah. 100%. I think that there's sections of people, people like that, that would say, yeah, I wish our, I wish our boy would go in and just act like that and, you know, flop his dick out on the, you know, the speaker's desk. Yeah, I have no doubt that they would like that. Yeah, it's just amazing how much more subtle... Be a communist left wing Hollywood needs to be in their propaganda compared to something like Gabriel. Like this movie literally has to be one of the most artfully thoughtful, incredibly detailed, beautiful pieces of work in order to get published compared to Gabriel, which is just some eccentric millionaire has enough money and it gets pushed out there. Well, like an example, I guess, and I haven't seen Barbie. I mean, Evan can comment on this more than me, but like from my, what my wife's told me, it's an entertaining, somewhat nuanced film that like you can get a lot out of, right? And you listen to, again, those right-wing guys, they're just like fucking stupid movie, bullshit message, all this stuff. And then the amount of praise they put on, and again, I haven't seen this either, that Sound of Freedom or whatever the fuck it's called, they just like gush over what a fantastic film that is. And then when you read any actual critiques of that film, it's just like a total piece of trash. 
And I think earlier you guys were mentioning how great it would be to like own a company and just be able to produce all this shitty culture stuff. Is it Angel Films that made that, Evan? Do you know? It sounds right. I don't remember. They're making like three more films. And this was just a company. What they used to do was they just used to edit out any swearing or nudity in films and then put that out to like make it more friendly to Christians. And then (laughs) they got sued for it. So they had to shut down and change their name. So now they've just bought up scripts that like Hollywood won't take that have like a Christian or super conservative bent and they're making it. And you know, if they're going to quote unquote be successful, at least for like a weekend, because everybody on that side is going to go see these movies and like, they're just trash. And socialist or or more nuanced movies have to be so much better quality to get like any type of traction. It seems like people don't even have to go see this because like right wing backers will continue to pour money into these ventures, right? Just to keep the project going. Right. And that's why it's so much easier for the right to like organize because they actually have like many more people that will put a lot more money into the projects because ultimately they're not fighting capitalism. They're not fighting the ruling class's interests at all, right? Okay, you could look at somebody like Boots Riley who produces something like Sorry to Bother You. And again, like I don't think that that, that message is as nuanced. I think it's pretty much on its face what he's trying to do, right? But like again, like that's a low production film because Boots Riley is not going to get the money to produce something that like directly criticizes capitalism in the way that he does in that film. But I think the difference between like that and a sound of freedom is that even though it's lower budget, like the quality of it is still so good that it gets critically acclaimed. And like, it's still that that's kind of my point. Yeah. Our stuff has to be like so much better to gain traction. The other thing about those kind of movies, well, two things, one, so that film who made sound of freedom They're making a new movie. The new movie is, this is the plot line. 1890s New York City Italian-American religious sister Francesca Cabrini becomes an (laughs) unlikely entrepreneur and philanthropist. Yes. When the Italians became white. Makes me really sad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but but the other thing about like when you mentioned Barbie, Steve, is that I think Hollywood will make a movie, allow a movie, literally allow a movie to be made that's criticizes capitalism or criticizes consumerism if they know it will make money off of this idea like that's what we have now unfortunately is anti-capitalism is now like a selling point for hollywood because it's like in vogue to shit talk capitalism it's not far enough for us but it's the best you're gonna get it's just like that dumb money that's coming out right about gamestop oh god that movie looks yeah, terrible. <laughs> it's the same type of thing, right? It's like they're going to make fun of this stock market and these venture capital firms that lost billions of dollars, but they're only going to do it because it's going to make money. I look at something like The Boys. I don't know if you guys have watched that show, right? But it's a show produced on Amazon with very explicit criticisms of corporate America. And if you know capitalism, right? But at some level, it just kind of feels like Amazon and Bezos dancing in the end zone, knowing that they can put something like, like that out there that people are still going to consume and absolutely do nothing with in terms of like taking the message further. I think your main point is right, that these left wing movies have to be well done in order to get any traction. Whereas right wing movies, they have money behind them anyway. And it gets to the point that Sound of Freedom was actually not viewed by that 
many people compared to these other movies. It was like this astroturfing funding where people were just buying up empty theaters. And that's something the right wing can do that the left wing can never do. Even if that's exaggerated in the media, it just does not happen on the left. We don't have some billionaire buying theaters. It's the same thing with books, right? You see like these right wing books at the top of the New York Times, and that's because Fox News have bought a million copies of it and just like give it out for free. Yeah. What does this say then about the limits of film as propaganda? So we're seeing this piece, which is a great piece of left wing film, but it has these extreme limitations on its propaganda value. Well, I mean, you're still dealing with the base while living in a superstructural realm in this, right? And I think you could juxtapose this with something where like you have proletarian art as like a project of the Soviet Union, right? Like whereas there's this impetus coming from the state that was created by the people and based on workers' councils to create new art, right? To generate a new superstructure, right? And you're fighting in this case within a superstructure that needs to be filtered through the motives of the base. And that kind of comes out in censoring out the most communist, the most radical lines, right? So there's limits just imposed inherently by the overall system that we're living in, in terms of what's allowed to be said. We live in like a freedom of speech world, right? Freedom of censorship. That's all fucking bullshit because nothing that is actually going to threaten the fundamentals, the base, capitalism is going to be let through. We have to engage in, in that facet of the struggle as well, but you're never going to get the most radical message through, I don't think, on a very broad basis. I mean, they really stress in this movie heavily, like the individual nature, or at least context of this movie, like the family unit as the individual pulling for one another when they could pull for each other, but they don't. And they really, again, I haven't read the book in a long time, so I don't know if that's as explicit in the, in the book. The language in the movie is remarkably spot on for the book. It really is a great adaptation. Clearly there's differences. One of the biggest differences I noticed skimming through the book again is that religion plays a much larger role. Religion is practically not mentioned. I mean, Preacher Casey still has to be a preacher, but explicit references to biblical scripture are all gone. And I think that is a core sort of struggle that the movie has with this nature of individualism within movement structures, because there are notions of community and being part of something much larger than the individual that are mentioned but it, it, again, is not made explicit. These are the characters sort of struggling with their position as an individual versus their position as part of one large people. And I think that actually works as a transition to the closing soliloquy. 20 days work? Oh, boy. No, I'll be glad to get my hands on some cotton. That's the kind of picking I understand. Maybe. Maybe 20 days work and maybe no days work. We ain't got it till we get it. What's the matter, Ma? Getting scared? Scared? Huh. I ain't never gonna be scared no more. I was, though. For a while, it looked as though we was beat. Good and beat. Looked like we didn't have nobody in the whole wide world but enemies. Like nobody was friendly no more. 
Made me feel kind of bad and scared, too. Like we was lost and nobody cared. You're the one that keeps us going, Ma. I ain't no good no more, and I know it. Seems like I spend all my time these days thinking how it used to be. Thinking of home. I ain't never going to see it no more. Well, Pa, a woman can change better than a man. A man lives sort of, well, in jerks. Baby's born or somebody dies and that's a jerk. He gets a farm or loses it and, and that's a jerk. With a woman, it's all in one flow like a stream. Little eddies and waterfalls, but the river, it goes right on. Woman looks at it that way. Well, maybe. Maybe we sure taking a beating. I know. <laughs> That's what makes us tough. Rich fellas come up and they die, and their kids ain't no good and they die out. But we keep a coming. We're the people that live. They can't wipe us out, they can't lick us. We'll go on forever, Pa, because we're the people. There, the movie fades to black. The original script actually stuck more accurately to the ending of the book. So according to the ending of the script, that final fade to black was meant to show the truck streaming, rattling, and churning, passes the Chevrolet. There was also a couple lines of dialogue where Al, the driver, is trying to pass this Chevrolet. And Al leans out the window and waves a jeering hand at it. As the Joe truck pulls in front, we see Ruthie and Winfield laughing with excitement over the triumph. Even Uncle John shares the general satisfaction. Grinning, he waves as the truck moves away along the road, all three, and beaming and waving. Further along, the truck passes a sign on the side of the road. It says, no help wanted. The scene fades. The end. So the original ending of the movie was meant to match the book in that they don't find work. There is no work. They're just leaving the comfort of the camp in order to go to more desolation and hopelessness. It seems like the movie as it is, is trying to make a piece of propaganda in support of the government. They have work. They're cheering on. We're the people. We haven't been licked. But the movie as it was originally meant to end was to show that they actually haven't succeeded. This government is not enough. They're not saved. To look at it positively, can we look at Ma Jode's words there? And again, they're kind of couched in that kind of binary gendered language right of like a man looks at it like this way and that a woman would look at it this way but if we kind of extrapolate that out right you could look at that as like a jerk and it's maybe the final jerk for the jode family but for the people as a whole if the movement continues on is it just another eddy or maybe in this case a whirlpool that is catastrophic for a lot of people in the midst of the overall flow of the river but that it keeps going on I guess that's an optimistic way I could look at it, but that I want to emphasize this idea that the people's movement that she's kind of alluding to has to continue on, even if some of us are lost kind of in the wreckage on the way there. I think it's still a critique of the system in that, yeah, there was kind of like this one haven that they found that was temporary within the structures of the New Deal, but the pitfalls still remain. And I think the movie was meant in its original ending to sort of emphasize that there are contradictions, that until they get out of this system, they're never actually going to be stable. They're going to continually be jerked around. 
There needs to be more than one government camp. There needs to be a systemic change to the way the economy is organized or else man is just going to continually be jerked around. Yeah, you could get a good job, have a good wage, be going well. And then why not, you know, every four years, the economy collapses like it does. And then you're kind of back to square one. So your only chance, like you're saying, is to rearrange society. So you're not having a once in a lifetime every four year collapse of the global capital system. And the way they end this and they kind of alter it a little bit kind of goes along with the scene where they're cutting out the reference to communists and the what they want. Even though this is a very good, maybe a great movie, and it's a great, as you say, adaptation of the book, it still is meant at this time to be a successful piece of American propaganda. And this, I think, cements that. This is truly a piece of popular front culture. It's clearly more anti-fascist than it is anti-capitalist. It's celebrating the accomplishments of the New Deal rather than criticizing the limits of the New Deal. But that criticism is still there. It's just clearly not front and center. I couldn't find anything online saying that the government intervened at all in the making of this movie. Because I know starting in the 60s, you know, anything related to military was explicitly edited by the Department of Defense, CIA, FBI. I would wonder if they're just someone called the studio and said, like, this needs to be tamped down. It just seems like the muscles for that hadn't quite been developed yet. You know, the bureaucracy was still being created. Right. Propaganda was still something that was new. I mean, this was the first president that made regular announcements to the public, even. Mm -hmm. And this just really was an exceptional moment where something like this could exist. Yeah. I mean, they certainly could have self-regulated themselves, you know, as, you know, this this is what we're going to do to make sure it broader message, more people accept it, make money. You know, so maybe you're right. Maybe there is no actual someone calling the studio to do something. It's the studio saying this will make the most money. This will be the most popular. And I mean, I think that's like very plausible, especially when we go back to Levi's initial framing with the popular front. Right. Like, I mean, that means that there could be some progressive liberal kind of making that decision here that still, you know, doesn't want to get away from capitalism or what it means or still believes in like America. Right. To say, hey, like. We need to put this out there to still give people hope within this context and not push it too far. So Victor Records approached Woody Guthrie with aims to cash in on the success of the Grapes of Wrath and record an authentic Oki for mass consumption. Guthrie recorded the 11 works of his Dust Bowl Ballads album with nothing but his voice, guitar, and harmonica over a week in spring 1940. Victor published the album that July to bank off Zenuk's Grapes of Wrath, still in theaters across the country. There's a worthwhile point to make here in terms of representation and reality. Speaking to Ali Lomax about his travels with Dust Bowl refugees, Guthrie admitted, I was a little bit different from... I wasn't in the class that that John Steinbeck called the Okies because my dad, uh, to start with, was worth about $35,000 or $40,000. About seven hundred fifty thousand to one million dollars in today's currency. And he had everything hunky-dory. Guthrie crafted his Dust Bowl persona, including the misspelled words, aphorisms, and the many songs in his repertoire during his time traveling and living among the Dust Bowl refugees. He also was hesitant to use the word "oki," as that was actually a pejorative word. The Dust Bowl ballads record is thus, like Grapes of Wrath, 
presented as an authentic, as it really was, piece of culture, but is in fact a fictional piece of art created by a brilliant artist. Guthrie's seven-minute epic, Tom Joad, was the only tune on the record which he didn't perform during his time among the refugees. Victor required him to write it to more easily tie the record to the commercial success of The Grapes of Wrath. Guthrie based his interpretation on the film, having never read the book, sung to the tune of traditional mountain outlaw ballad John Hardy, and recast the character of Tom Joad as an outlaw fighting for the working class. The bulk of the song covered the plot points of the film pretty standard, but ended the narrative on a rendition of Tom's final words to Ma Joad, quote, Everybody might be just one big soul, well it looks that way to me. Everywhere that you look in the day or night, that's where I'm gonna be, Ma. That's where I'm gonna be. Wherever little children are hungry and cry, wherever people ain't free, wherever men are fighting for their rights, that's where I'm gonna be, Ma. That's where I'm gonna be. The ending appears to parallel the 1936 Earl Robinson Union ballad, Joe Hill, which closed. Joe Hill ain't dead, he says to me. Joe Hill ain't never died. Where working men are out on strike, Joe Hill is at their side. Joe Hill is at their side. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, says he'll find Joe Hill, says he'll find Joe Hill. Which itself reflects the infamous 1918 words of Socialist Party stalwart. Eugene V. Debs, before the court, which convicted him of violating the Sedition Act. Quote, Your Honor, years ago I recognized my kinship with all living things, and I made up my mind that I was not one bit better than the meanest on earth. I said then and I say now that while there is a lower class, I am in it. While there is a criminal element, I am of it. And while there is a soul in prison, I am not free. So how does this very explicit socialist message change the understanding of the soliloquy of Tom Joad near the end of Grapes of Wrath? We could apply this and make it more effective for us, right? Just because you can imagine, especially as you watch the end of the film or, you know, leave Tom Joad's story there, he's kind of going off, right? So you could see him going out to become that maybe moving beyond the fellow traveler status to become the explicit socialist agitator fighting for a better world, like taking what he learned from preacher Casey, learning more and going on and standing on the picket line, helping people out, doing the, the housing work that everybody needs to be doing, doing the food distribution work, all that kind of stuff. So I think in that sense, if you can kind of like, Imagine Tom Joad's character as kind of being open-ended and taking what he learned from his life lessons into the pages that aren't written. 
then I think it can become very optimistic. What he does is a stand in for working class organizers broadly. Tom Chode as a character is not somebody that begins and ends the same. What he believes at the beginning of the movie is not what he ends up believing after his experience and after understanding and after being, I think as Casey describes it, being beat up. Understanding the system by living through it, by the class struggle. He gets better. It can all get better. Thanks, Levi, for putting this together. Yeah. Evan, thanks so much for joining, man. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Do you got anything you want to plug? I know you got your uh, spooky season series coming up and we'll be featured on it a little bit. So a lot of collaborations coming up in the future as well. But for Halloween, people will be listening to this, but you'll be. uh, We'll have uh, The Shining, Pan's Labyrinth, and then I've got uh, Night of the Living Dead, Alien coming in there, too. So lots of thoughtful horror. Yeah, we'll call them. No, it should be fun. We're looking forward to it. And, you know, we look forward to future projects as well. On our side, we've obviously got a lot coming down the pike. I think one of the next things you'll hear is the 18th Room Mayor, which I think will tie in well into some of the themes of fascism and hearkening back that we touched on a little bit here in this episode. But we won't spoil too much. As always, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Check out everything that we've got in our back catalog. Follow us on Instagram at Intervention Pod. Follow Left of the Projector Pod. I'll include all the links that Evan has so you can get access to that. But yeah, leave us a review as long as it's positive. And we'll talk to y'all next time. Thanks. You know what I've been thinking thanks. about? Thank you. Adios, paisanos. By Casey. About what he said, what he done about how he died and I remember all of it he was a good man I've been thinking about us too about our people living like pigs and good rich land laying fallow or maybe one guy with a million acres and a hundred thousand farmers starving and I've been wondering if all our folks got together and yelled. Oh, Tommy, they'd drive you out and cut you down just they like they've done to Casey. They'd drive me anyways. Sooner or later they'd get me for one thing, if not for another. Until then... Tommy, you're not even to kill nobody. No, Ma, not that. That ain't it. It's just... Well, as long as I'm an outlaw anyways, maybe I can do something. Maybe I can... Just find out something. Just scrounge around and maybe find out what it is that's wrong. And see if there ain't something can be done about it. I thought it all out clear, my. I can't. I don't know enough. How am I going to know about you, Tommy? Why, they could kill you and I'd never know. They could hurt you. How am I going to know? Well, maybe it's like Casey says. Fella ain't got a soul of his own, just a little piece of a big soul. The one big soul that belongs to everybody. Then... Then what, Tom? Then it don't matter. I'll be all around in the dark. I'll be everywhere, wherever you can look. Wherever there's a fight so hungry people can eat, I'll be there. 
wherever there's a cop beating up a guy, I'll be there. I'll be in the way guys yell when they're mad. I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry and they know supper's ready. And when the people are eating the stuff they raise and living in the houses they build, I'll be there too. I don't understand it, Tom. Me neither, Ma, but just something I've been thinking about. Give me your hand. 